As I, <clears throat> as I heard uh, Deborah mention, each night um, at this time of the day we'll be giving something called a Dharma Talk. And it's a chance to kind of um, uh, show you a little bit more about um, the theory behind what we're doing, give some clarity and hopefully some inspiration. Um, so at least that's the intent. <laughs> um, while you're listening to a talk like this, you could have your attention out here on me. Um, but one thing to practice, which is uh, maybe new for some of you, is to settle back a little bit and keep some awareness of your body in the position that it's in, just lightly, so not completely disconnected with your body while you're listening to this talk. Um, and that might stabilize your attention throughout the entire talk. Um, it'll maybe wander less. So something to experiment with. And it's a beautiful uh, practice to take off retreats, uh, embodied listening. So this is a chance to practice that as well. Um, the title of tonight's talk is The Three Trainings. And I'm going to talk about the three basic trainings that make up the Buddhist path to awakening or to a greater and deeper peace or joy. So there are three things that we do in uh, on this path here, three things that we'll be teaching about. And we can practice them individually, maybe in the beginning. Um, but in the end, these three trainings combine into one, which is really just uh, the capacity to, be, to feel the world without getting caught up in it. And so that's what these three trainings lead to. The language that the Buddha uh, spoke um, 2,500 years ago is close to what we call Pali. And so a lot of his um, teachings are recorded in this language, the Pali language. And so these three, these three trainings have three Pali words. They're called sila, samadhi, and panya. And you don't have to remember that because they also have English uh, titles as well. So the sila, which is the first training, is um, ethical conduct or ethical attunement to your environment. That's one whole training that we do here. Um, we talked about it a bit, La um, and Orin, when they were talking about the refuges and the precepts. We're guiding us towards that, you know, the five precepts that we took last night. Um, that's an ongoing practice here, to become more ethically aware, more ethically attuned. So if you're doing that, then you're actually taking solid steps on this path. If you are um, sensitive to your environment, especially in, in terms of causing harm or generating something uh, beautiful or positive. That's all in the realm of ethical conduct. The second training is called samadhi. And that's the practice that is the bulk of what we'll actually be doing here is taking a mind that's um, pretty scattered. I mean, we get by in daily life, but once we come on this retreat, we see how much, how hard it is to actually give the full of our attention to where we want to place it. And so the mind the attention wanders and it feels scattered. And it's kind of unproductive to have such a, um, an agitated relationship to life, an unfocused relationship to life. So that's the, uh, the bulk of what we'll be doing on this retreat, is learning to gather our attention and place it where we want. And then the third training is the development of wisdom. And the Pali word is panya. And so when we actually begin to feel life more deeply, we'll understand life more deeply. And from that, we can relate to the way things are with a lot more clarity 
and a lot more compassion than we do in daily life. So these are the three trainings, the training in ethical, um, ethical conduct, gathering the attention into concentration, and then once we know how to be radically present, you'll see things completely different. You'll, you'll, there, there are depths that we just don't know about until we know how to stabilize our attention. And then we can uh, steer our way through life um, with this heightened clarity, this heightened awareness, heightened wisdom. I'd like to start with um, <clears throat> a couple of stories of people I met when I was fairly young. Um, my first meditation retreat uh, happened when I was in college and um, I was 21 when that happened. And up until that point, um, I remember being pretty reflective uh, in my teen years. One of the things I was re- reflecting on is which of the adults around me looked actually happy? They all said they were happy. They all liked their version of life. <laughs> but um, if I spent time with them, I got to see that uh, um, their happiness wasn't, wasn't that profound and they were easily shaken up, easily shaken up into fear or worry or agitation. The first person that I met that um, had this profound happiness was um, a man who took me uh, with a group of other kids on a long canoe trip up through Canada and uh, up through the waters of northern Ontario. And nothing could shake him. We were out there on beautiful sunny days, he'd be happy. It'd start to rain, he'd be happy. We would have long, hard days, and one by one we'd all get kind of grumpy about that, he'd be happy. We'd have days of rest, he'd be happy. And I got to live with him for six weeks up there and it was very hard to ruffle him. And so I, I, I was watching him like, where do you draw that from? Like, what did you do to be that happy? Because I've never met somebody who could be that happy all the time. And it wasn't like the happy, giggly joy he could do that. But when often he would just relax back and whatever we were doing, he'd already learned how to love it no matter what the weather was, what the work of the day was, no matter what the people he came in contact with. When it would rain, <clears throat> all he would do, we would all put on our, our rain jackets. And then we would start to grumble a little bit because it would be cold, a little bit wet. And I'd see this twinkle in his eye. All he would do is take his pipe and turn it upside down uh, and light it and then puff on the pipe upside down. And he'd look back at us and smile. That's all he needed to be happy in a big rainstorm, is to be able to puff on this pipe. Um, And by the end of six weeks up there, um, I also found that I wasn't thrown by the rain, wasn't thrown by sleeping on the ground, hard days. Um, So there is a possibility of training so that your happiness, your joy in life, is not um, a small place, just on the weekends, just on vacation, only when you're with certain groups of people, and even then you don't know. You actually can cultivate a very deep, sense of uh, happiness and well-being that becomes not based on the conditions you're in. That's where this training, these three trainings head. A second time I saw this is that I used to do a lot of um, environmental work and uh, back in the 80s um, we were doing a lot of work trying to shut down the nuclear test site in Nevada. Um, Over the course of the last 40 years, 50 years, they've actually blown up um, over 700 full nuclear bombs in Nevada, but they would bury them and blow them up. And <clears throat> it may not be part of your generation's worry, but when we were growing up, we lived on the sense that in any moment there could be massive global nuclear war. 
And so we would travel down there and see if we could do something to stop the test or at least show that we were concerned about this. And one of the things we tried to do is practice peace at the gate, or the main gate going into the nuclear test site, and try to be peaceful externally, but also peaceful internally. And I found that very difficult to do. I was impatient. Uh, the, the guards would joke in a certain way at the gate, and I'd kind of be kind of offended by it. But we were asked to be very peaceful when we would get arrested or when we would interact with them. And then I finally saw these two older Quaker women, and I saw them walk down to the gate, dialogue with the guards, um, get arrested, and they also had like nothing, they had this glimmer in their eye. This, they were very happy to be there, and they were very happy even to get arrested for their beliefs. And they didn't confront the guards, they talked to them. And they had done this for a number of years so that when they came to get arrested, <coughs> they would say something like, oh, look, it's Stan. Stan's going to arrest us today. <laughs> and like, oh, hi, Mabel, and hi, Sarah. So good to see you again. How are your kids? And they're holding up their hands, and they click, click, go on the cleft. And they sort of check in. It's like, hope you're doing well, hope you're doing well. It's like, wow, they, they really have ended their internal war. They really have ended, uh, to a large degree, their... Um, judgment or the way their uh, hearts might be reactive. And so in that little micro scale, they showed me um, an example of what it's like to be profoundly happy um, in a place of well-being, no matter what the circumstances. And later on at night, when I was walking back to where I was camping, I would pass their camp and they would be in the same mood, the crackling fire and they'd be talking. And I got to see them over the course of the 10 days. And I was really amazed by the quality of their convictions and their joy, their patience, but also their willingness to put themselves right on the line of their beliefs. And I, I knew then what I wanted to become, but I had no idea how to actually do it. I had no idea what type of training could possibly make a difference in how my mind actually works and what I want and how I want it to work. And it was just by seeking and experimenting that I came on a, um, a long retreat like this one when I was 21. And I began to see on that retreat that I was not the first person who had asked the question, um, how do you actually find happiness? How do you cultivate happiness? And that for uh, 2,500 years, this tradition has been quite strong and has gone through many countries and now it's starting, starting to flourish here in North America. Um, so that was interesting because it kind of broke the sense of isolation that I didn't necessarily want materialism um, wasn't a big motivation for me, but I did want to find that um, that deep peace, that deep happiness. And luckily, I just stumbled across this retreat, this retreat format, and then I've been doing that ever since. Right after that first retreat, <clears throat> it was so difficult that um, when we had our closing circle and it finally came around to me, I said, um, I have no idea why anybody would do this twice. <laughs> Some of you have, I know some of you have done this, and some of you had done it for long periods, and why would you ever do this twice? It's so difficult. And so I wasn't planning on ever doing another one. But what I'd realized is that uh, I had never discovered something so honest. Even though it was difficult, it was incredibly honest. And all people were doing was supporting my capacity to develop an internal relationship to my uh, internal world, to even know what's going on inside my body, my heart, my mind, concurrently while it's happening. And I began to see that this actually was the training 
to lead to that um, incredible uh, happiness, peace, well-being, clarity, um, all these beautiful qualities that up until that point, they would happen, but they would happen randomly, and I wouldn't know how to do them again. I had a friend once who said, um, last night I was taking out the garbage, I put the garbage in the pail, closed it, and turned around, and I was just so happy, and I don't know why. And I was like, yeah, why does that happen? <laughs> what are those moments, and how come you can't do it again? How come every time you take the garbage out, you can't be happy? Like, how, how do you do that? So that's what these uh, three trainings are. There's a quote I came across recently that I, uh, reminds me very much of that, um, that gu- uh, wilderness guide. And it's by a, a guy named Roger Miller, who's a country singer. And he said, it's just short, it says, some people feel the rain while others just get wet. And that, in its simple form, is some of the promise of what this practice is. That life happens, highs and lows happen in life. And some people just get wet because those are the conditions. But others learn to actually feel the rain, learning to feel your actual life, actually learning to learn from your actual life versus just having concepts um, of how to be happy. So that leads to this path, and this path has these three trainings. The first training, again, the Pali word is sila, and it's ethical attunement. Um, So we start with these five precepts, and that's a lot of the practice that uh, we do if you're not necessarily ordained. But um, you have these five precepts. Anytime that you find yourself tuning into what the precept is guiding you towards, you're you're doing a strong practice. So if you're doing walking meditation and there's a line of ants, or there's a lizard in the sun, you take notice of that and you don't step on the ants, you don't step on the lizard. So not to harm, not to take a shortcut uh, and take something that's not yours and think you might get away with it. Um, Understanding the power of uh, sexual relationships, sexual desire, and the vulnerability in that realm for all of us. So becoming more wise there, having more understanding. And the fourth one around uh, wise speech. These are all trainings um, that we do here, that we practice here. And we don't uh, check that box and move on. As we keep waking up, we become more and more ethically attuned to our environment. Because we can feel things much more than we did. And that inspires that sense of being ethically attuned. One part of the ethical attunement is to you know, head towards harm reduction or bringing harmful actions to zero, as Oren was talking about last night. That's the common theme. The other one is what can we generate? What can we do for each other? How can we build a warm community where people are looking out for each other? And the word we use there is a Pali word called dana, which just means generous sharing, generous caring for yourself and for others. That's one whole training. And so while you're here, um, you're being attuned to that. You can ask questions about it. You can begin to explore what is it like to live by a, a heightened ethical concern to not cause harm and to see if you can generate uh, well-being for yourself and others. The second training, and again, this is a large part of what we do here on silent meditation retreats, is <clears throat> developing a mind that is not scattered, 
um, a mind that feels whole and landed where you want it. So that's not common on the first day of a retreat that people feel a lot of that, unless you've been doing a lot of practice in daily life. So most of us on this first day, we're experiencing what's like the mind that we've been using over the last couple of weeks, last couple of months. If we've had an agitated lifestyle, we'll develop an agitated mind. And here on the retreat, we're, we're patiently letting it calm down, letting it gather, letting it regroup. That image of a snow globe that you spin and it has fluid inside and all these little white things, these specks, and they all spin. If you stop sp- agitating the globe, all that generally settles. And then you can see right through it. You can see right through the clarity of that uh, snow globe. But if you keep spinning it, you can't see through it. All you see is the turbulence. So it's a big part of what we're doing here is patiently um, welcoming our attention to be where we want it, to be whole, to be relaxed, to be gathered, collected uh, in one spot. One of the benefits of doing that is that your, your mind and your heart become very powerful when they're actually collected, when they're unified. Um, when they're scattered, you can be a good person uh, for sure, but in that scatteredness, you have a kind of a weak relationship to what's happening in the moment. But the more you actually know how to gather your attention and use it for what you want, that those actions and those moments tend to be very powerful. So um, the benefit of doing that is one of sort of one, taking out the restlessness of the mind, but two, actually making it quite powerful. Many of you will probably already have the experience of the best moments in your life are probably the ones where you feel incredibly present while it's happening. And you might like that activity because it does that for you. So for some people, it's playing music. When they play music, their attention really gathers. For others, it's around certain friends. Uh, Some people like video games. Some people like uh, sports. Um, There are many ways that you might find that when your attention is full, you can really appreciate life on another level. And if you're distracted, you can feel that the quality of those moments um, are usually not that special if our attention is somewhat scattered. My sister has had a number of kids. She's had five of them. And every time I've held them when they were quite young, my first meeting with them, I watched the entirety of my attention naturally gravitate towards holding my nephew or my niece. And it feels sacred when our attention gathers and becomes whole like that. And we have this beautiful, stable intimacy with the flow of those experiences. And so that's an external experience that welcomes my heart and my mind to be whole, gathered, collected, feeling life. But that if I don't uh, practice in that, then it's, it's the circumstance that's really showing me what a whole mind feels like, what a whole heart feels like. And then... I go out to my daily life and I get scattered again. So this very profound capacity that we're practicing moment by moment, either we're sitting or walking, or maybe we'll uh, teach eating meditation tomorrow. Can you give the full of your attention to that moment of your life? And that's the intention, but how we've used our mind from the past um, it's been a little more scattered. So it takes a while. It takes a while to develop this ability to gather your attention. And then we lose it for a little bit and it regathers. 
we lose it for a little bit and regathers. Maybe over the course of the many days here, you might drop in at times to feel what a very stable, collected, unified attention feels like. If you can do that here with the breath or with sounds, you can do it everywhere because the breath is not that um, thrilling in and of itself or sounds, they're, they're often quite common. So if you can gather your attention on something subtle like the breath or something subtle like a bird call or hearing a plane fly over when you're walking and you actually can gather your attention and feel one step at a time, being able to drop down into that experience and be present for it over a length of time, um, that's a skill you can take anywhere. I've done walking meditation in downtown San Francisco. I've done it in through crowded airports. Um, I can sit on a plane and find my breath while I'm sitting on a plane. One of the greatest trips I ever did driving across the country is I sat a 10-day meditation retreat and then drove from Seattle to Boston. And I, put the, I got to Montana and I put the car on cruise control and I lifted my feet up um, cruising at 70 miles an hour, which was legal back then. I guess it still is. And just cruising across the state, just watching it. It was so beautiful to be that gathered and collected. After 10 days of hard work, um, I had all that momentum to see what that type of presence is like. You may have doubt after today that, you'll, that that will happen for you. Um, but that's what first days feel like. If you've never done this before, it's easy to feel doubt and frustration and wonder if everybody else looks so still, they must already be dropped into that place. And I'm the one who's not. I'm the crazy-minded one. But how many of you found today to be turbulent? How many of you found today to be challenging? Okay, so this is your community honestly raising their hands and showing that it's challenging. But it's doable. And you're all here proving that. So gathering your attention, collecting your attention. The third part, <coughs> panya, or wisdom, comes once we gather our attention and we can actually flow through an experience of our life with the sort of uh, heightened attention. We can open up through what's called mindfulness to really see what's going on. And that's what generates the wisdom. Stabilizing your attention and then deepening your intimacy with whatever you're attending, the breath or sounds, tastes of food. That increased uh, intimacy happens because your attention has become a little more stable. And then from that, you can see what's happening. You really can see things for the first time because you're, you have this heightened intimacy and heightened stability of your attention. The parallel for me on this is, um, there are many, but one, I used to be a physicist um, in my training. I guess I still am, but I used to be one too. And um, uh, the story of uh, Galileo, um, other people had made telescopes, but he was the first astronomer, uh, astronomer to take a telescope and look up into the sky. And so he was the first person to see the moons around Jupiter, that Venus had phases like our moon, and that our moon wasn't a perfect disk, that it had bumps and ridges on it. No one had ever seen that before. And so up until that point, the common view was that uh, Jupiter was just a dot of light in the sky, um, so was Venus, and that the moon was a perfect round disk. But with a, the aid of a kind of a, 
a fairly weak telescope for his, for, by our standards, he saw something that no human had ever seen before because he had heightened attention, he had heightened intimacy with the night sky. And it changed the entire paradigm from believing the common view that the sun's traveling around the earth and the earth is much bigger than the sun. That's the common view, common sense view. From that, that began a revolution to understand that's actually the earth that goes around the sun. That was really scary for people back then because they had this common view. But now many of us are not scared of that. Uh, in fact, you might even find it enjoyable if you um, look at the pictures that Hubble puts out. The Hubble tes uh, Space Telescope is so beautiful. So unless you're still in the flat earth camp, um, we've all come to terms with the fact that the earth goes around the sun and it doesn't bother us. And then we can actually do incredible things like get that rover on the planet of Mars and land it safely and it's driving around. I mean, that's just astonishing. So that's heightened awareness, heightened intimacy with the night sky. And it changed common view into something more accurate. And from that, it's not so troubling anymore. We actually can enjoy that. That's often what concentration and mindfulness does for us, is that we stabilize our attention and we deepen our intimacy with whatever's happening. And at first you might say, okay, so what? I've been breathing all my life. Okay, now you've got me to feel a lot of breathing. So why is that worth the effort? It's worth the effort because, um, for many reasons, and you'll see over time what grows out of that possibility. But one, we're learning how to stabilize our attention so it's not so scattered and fragmented. Um, and then not only stabilizing our attention, but actually opening up intimacy to what it's like to be in a human body. This human body, with its uh, emotional capacity and its brilliance of mind and the sensitivity of the hearing and the, uh, what we can take into our eyes and all that this body feels, it's incredible. But most of us have a shallow relationship to our bodies, to what it's like to really open up to our senses. And so we take it for granted and we're like, well, it's a little dull. I mean, I'd rather be playing blackjack on my iPhone. <laughs> That's entertaining. But this breath, you know, it's kind of common. By actually paying attention, dropping into the breath, feeling into your body, a whole world within begins to open up and you can feel uh, incredible things in this body. I was practicing in Burma for a year and I worked with this beautiful teacher named Pao Xayada. And he's the first person that really had me for an entire month just love the fact that my body can feel temperature. And so I sit there and I could do breathing meditation, but then I just began to do scanning my attention through my body and uh, feeling the play of temperature. And you can feel parts of your body begin to warm up and then circulation opens and it cools, there's perspiration. Some parts of your body are warmer than others. It was amazing to drop into this body and to have not done that up until that point. You have an amazing vehicle of this body. And over the time that we spend here, you're going to open up a very deep relationship to what it's like to actually have a body, to have that direct experience. The same is true for realms of the heart our emotional realms, our relationship realms. And then also looking at the mind, some of it's intellectual and some of it's the, the capacity of how we understand things, how we uh, understand the complexities of our world. 
you actually will, over time, develop that over the next couple of days, develop a capacity to see things. And then you can see patterns that you might not have seen otherwise. So again, common view is one thing, but once you deepen your intimacy, you can realize what you thought you understood um, wasn't accurate. It just felt accurate at the time. I was just traveling back to um, the East Coast to visit my family. I've kind of long since given up trying to change them. Um, They're not that changeable, and I I gave it a good shot uh, for many decades, but they uh, tenaciously um, are themselves, uncompromised, they are themselves. And we have some family patterns that I've tried to bring to our attention and see if we could do something else. But um, I don't have a, uh, someone on the other side that wants to do that as much as I do. So we kind of live out old family patterns. And now it's just kind of, you know, it, it's fine. I don't have to change them. But I was having um, coffee with my brother. And we have this old relationship where at some point he's kind of tired of her- hearing my views about the world and pretty much just wants to download his views about the world. And I, I don't mind it, but it can go on for hours, especially when we've had some uh, coffee in us. So he was doing this. He was kind of like in his lecture mode, really you know, brilliant, but it's just like, wow, he never really takes an interest about the things I've done in my life, but I'll let it go. You know, it's a little sensitive, but that's fine. Then he left, and I went to text a friend. I was like, yep, just had my, you know, my three-hour lecture from my brother, and you know, it's all very fun, but you know, he was definitely in lecture mode. And I felt when I was doing that, that I was a little irritated at him. So I was kind of like poking at him a little bit with his text. And it was just going to be a little, little joke that I was sharing with a friend. So <clears throat> I saw that I was I loading it, like kind of really loading it with, from my perspective on how he does this and he's not conscious. And, rah, 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 rah. and I saw that. I was like, you know, I actually believe in right speech. And I believe that this is not a good energy to kind of put out in the world. So I changed it, lightened it up a little bit press send, and accidentally sent it to my brother. <laughs> and I was mortified. I was like, oh my God, we don't have a capacity to talk about these things when, when we upset each other. It just gets bad. It just gets heavy. We kind of brood a little bit. And enough time goes by that we don't look at it. I've tried having conversations with him about this, but it doesn't work so well. So <clears throat> one perspective was my brother's doing this thing to me, send the text, oh my God, what did I do? I apologized. But then I sat with it for a while and I used mindfulness on what it was like to be in the situation with my brother. It wasn't very pleasant, but it was important to really see what's going on. And my original view had me a little bit of the, um, the innocent victim in my family and then all these other people do these bad things. But I saw when I reflected on it and really felt into it, that I had participated in that dynamic, that it's not just what he does, I have a role in that. And so when I went to apologize to him, after some time of reflection, I could have started, you know, I get tired when you do this thing to me, that's one perspective. But by dropping in, I could see, you know, we create this situation. And it's easier to hear that, it's more accurate. So I can actually uh, reconnect with him when there's been a transgression like that. because I understand I'm participating in what's happening. But that takes self-intimacy. You have to know yourself. You have to see how your mind is working, the patterns of your mind, to not just be uh, taken up by them, but actually see them as patterns. So on a, on a retreat like this, 
one early insight that we can all have is how much this thing thinks and how unstoppable it is to make this thing stop thinking. And that's really not the goal of this practice to make it stop thinking. Like the goal of our practice is not to go deaf so we don't hear sounds. The goal of our practice is not to stop thinking but to have a different relationship to it, to have a wise relationship to all these thoughts that are happening. On my first retreat, <clears throat> I was at 21, and I was kind of in a, a long argument with my mom and my dad, but at that time it was a little bit more with my mom. And I sat there <clears throat> on retreat, and once I got bored of feeling another breath, this argument came up from the past. I was like, oh, I, I'm going to stop meditating for a little bit because it's a little bit dull. But this argument is really important. So now that I have you know, days here, I can really think it through. I can <clears throat> write down uh, the winning argument. And if I practice it, I can go in there and finally win this argument with her. And it seemed like a great strategy. That's what I'd done before. And now I had a meditation retreat to kind of really polish this argument and get it just like made of uh, steel. So I was kind of like doing that for a couple hours. And I'd come back and feel the breath. I was like, yeah, it hasn't gotten any better. Still the breath. So I'm like, let's go off into this fantasy. And sometimes the fantasy I'm winning, like, oh my God, everything coming out is amazing. But then the mood shifts a little bit, and you're a little tired, and you can't quite remember what you wanted to say. And then you start to feel more insecure about the argument, and so you're kind of obsessing, like, this is my strategy of how I'm going to work with my parents. And I was doing that. And um, one of the teachers on the retreat was talking to the entire room at one point, and just said to the entire room, not to me, uh, the thoughts you're having about your mother are not your actual mother. And then he went on, but I couldn't hear a word he said after that. And he might have just slapped me across the face. I was just, or like dumped a bucket of ice water on me. Because it was such a revelation. These thoughts that we have are just thoughts. But when we don't see them for what they are, they become realities to us. We're living into these thoughts. And when you're really lost in the realm of thought, it's creating a whole world for you to travel through. And maybe it's pleasant. Uh, It can be boring. It can be unpleasant. But there are really just phenomena happening here and now. And so that first, this is, we're talking about um, how mindfulness combines with the uh, gathering of your attention, where you can then come in and see things more clearly than you have before. You can see thought is just like activity of the mind. And it may be interesting. But if you have perspective that it's just activity of the mind, that's not real. I wasn't actually winning any argument with my mom. But it felt like I was. It felt, that's why I was kind of really getting into it, why I really enjoyed it. It's because at times I was really winning. I'd be sitting there like, yeah, I'm doing it. I'm finally getting that argument just right. And I could see that I was doing that with all of my friends. I could see I was doing it with the world, that I was living up in these realms of thought, trying to organize them so that if they happened to be pleasant, I would have pleasant experience. I'd feel confident and enjoy my uh, take on the world. But then they go down. They don't stay polished up on the shelf like you want them to. They're very affected by the moods you're having. And so that if you are living up in the thoughts and your mood goes down into sadness or anger or fear, your thoughts are just as happy to create a whole world of fear for you to live in as well. So the skill is coming out of that pattern and landing your attention someplace solid, not in the realm of thought. So we have the body, all the body sensations. We keep pulling our attention back, reinvesting in the body, 
in sounds, in tastes, smells, and sights. And there's plenty of extra thought. You can do that really, really with all your might. And you find that there's still uh, a lot of thinking happening. But you start to get the proportions right. What is useful about thought? Or is it just like a jungle of mental activity that you're lost within? So that's the possibility. On the early side of a retreat, we tend to really preference uh, the physical body or sounds, direct experiences, so that we don't just use the old pattern of getting kind of swept up into whatever thoughts are happening. But over time, once we stabilize them, thoughts are just another part of your experience. Just like the bird call, or what it tastes like when you drink a cup of tea, or when you walk outside and you take in these views. You know, you have these five basic senses, and then you have the experience of the mind. So that's where we're headed, but the first couple of days it's really important to keep pulling your attention out of that because it's very common in daily life just to be swept up into thoughts and then try to organize them. And here there's a whole other strategy, which is just coming out of them. Almost like the thoughts are a balloon. You can just pop it, and you can come down and feel your breath. That's what I did with my mom, is that my mind would start to argue with her, and I was just like, I don't have to win this argument, I just have to see it as thought. And I actually now have a tool, which is to come down and actually feel my next breath. And watching that whole train of, th- of thinking come and just pop, and I come back down and feel my breath. That's where we're headed with that capacity. So you don't just have to go on the thought ride. But then you can, and you have more choice about that. So there's a great benefit in that, um, and you'll, you'll see that. And people are, have come back to this retreat. That's one insight that's, that we can get early on, and it makes a world of difference to know that what's happening up in your mind um, is the activity of thinking, but it's not necessarily real, as real as the thoughts are telling you. When I went to see Jurassic Park for the first time, <clears throat> we just hadn't seen uh, that type of movie before. So we went in and sat down, and then within the first five minutes, I was panicked, I was anxious, and I was like, I'm not going to make it through this movie. This is way too intense, way too intense. And the dinosaur is like taking people out left and right. There's only seven of them, and then it, I'm next. Like, oh my God, he's taking them out, it's too fast and I'm going to be eaten up. <clears throat> but I'd done enough practice, I was like, why can't I, like seriously Temple, why can't you sit through this movie? It's like, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. I, I just can't, I can't. And so I was, I was like, okay, but let's really check into why you can't sit through. And I felt my body, what I wasn't aware of is I was sitting an inch off my seat, white knuckling the, um, the armrests, pushing back into the seat, and there's no way I could have done that for two hours. That was not possible. That would have been way too exhausting. So that's what I couldn't do. But the movie was just a movie, but it seemed so real that this nervous system was in, you know, I'm about to die. I'm about to die brutally. I just saw three people die. I'm I'm the next. So the movie convinced me that it was a reality, which is what movies do and why we enjoy them. Just a little bit of perspective. Settle down. I'm okay. I'm in a movie theater. Now let's actually enjoy this movie. But the, uh, the panic attacks that I was about to have um, in seeing these real-life dinosaurs, they look like real life, seeing them attack people, uh, when I took it as real, um, 
the, the panic that swept over me was huge, which is kind of the fun of a movie to a point. But then beyond that, it's kind of excruciating. Our thoughts are like that. And so um, the development of wisdom goes in many, many, many directions. And you'll see that over these many days. But one thing you all have some experience with now at the end of the first day is seeing that the mind wanders into thinking and you have a choice about it. I mean, you'll get stronger at that, but there is a choice to come out of that train of thinking when you realize that you're thinking and come back and just feel the body. And you can just step off that locomotion of whatever that thought is doing. Um, And you have an option. Then you can say, actually, I I don't mind this thought. This is actually helpful. I do need to think about something that's going to happen in the future. So then you let those thoughts happen, but you have choice about it. On this particular retreat, we want you to know the depths of what's possible when you learn to gather your attention. So while you're here for these seven days, rather than enjoying uh, the mind and all its creativity and kind of getting to those worlds, practice coming out and recognizing this is thoughts happening now as opposed to a reality that I'm actually living in. It's, a, it's very liberating to be able to uh, not just be uh, seduced by very powerful thoughts, even if they're pleasant, to have more choice over that. It's been very powerful for me, most of the people I know who've done it. <clears throat> so I know that you'll experience that um, as the retreat goes on. Another thing that you'll begin to see either today or, or soon as your mind stabilizes some is the pervasive nature of change. That we live in a universe of nothing is actually static. But the common sense is that things are static and then we get kind of thrown for it when they change or change in direction we don't want them to change. So this is a direct experience. It's not a belief that I have and it's actually going to go right down into the experience You see things are changing slowly or quickly, but everything's in a process of change, everything that you're experiencing. So as as your mindfulness develops and you drop in, that's one of the things that becomes obvious. Like when Galileo looked out the telescope and saw the moons of Jupiter, as mindfulness develops and you come in, anywhere you can be intimate with yourself or your world, you feel this changing nature. One of the ways that I've uh, talked to myself about that is um, I don't really encounter many nouns these days. There's just uh, slow verbs. <laughs> like this bell is a very slow verb. It's, it's activity, but it's just very slow how it's going through its activity. But it's changing little bit by little bit. The floor of this building, the building itself, uh, this body, it's all going through radical change all the time. But we don't know that with a common view. And so then we get disoriented when the common view that things don't change runs into the truth that things are changing actually all the time. So that's another wisdom capacity that comes up when we learn to stabilize our attention and then drop in with mindfulness to increase that intimacy. I want to talk a little bit more about um, what mindfulness is and what this intimacy is, because we've described it, and you might already have an intuitive sense about what mindfulness is. 
Mindfulness is bringing, in every moment you're awake, your attention is connected to something, a wandering thought, a sight, um, a present thought, if you're actually planning something, the food you're eating. Your mind is attending things all day long, but you may not have much intimacy in that experience. And so here's a, one example. You know, if, if, if you all were to raise your hand like this, so everybody try that. Raise your hand and then put it down. It takes some mindfulness to even know that you have a hand and raise it and know when to stop it. So we have some mindfulness, but profound mindfulness is where you actually become very intimate with that experience. So let's try it again. But as you raise your hand, see if you can be intimate with the experience of what you feel in your arm, your palm and your fingers as your hand goes up in the air. And what it feels like as you lower it. One level of that experience is uh, mildly mindful, mildly intimate. And that's the sort of the common relationship many of us have with our bodies. Over the days that we'll be here together, you're going to be cultivating the capacity to really drop into the flow of the experiences you're having with less judgment or preferences that things be different, less reactivity, and a, an increasing capacity to just feel what's happening before you respond to it. You learn to feel uh, pleasant sensations in the body and watch them uh, arise and watch them pass, watch them shift. You can be with unpleasant experiences in the body you can be with sounds, and you can watch what it's like to actually be intimate with sounds. One time I was doing a lot of hearing meditation by a, a meditation retreat center where there were a lot of cars driving by. And at first it was annoying because I had preferences that they not do that. But over time I built intimacy just by directly hearing a car start and it's, and it'd be actually fascinating. Far, far away I would hear the start of the car coming I'd hear the sounds get louder. If I could really connect with the sound, it wasn't one sound. It was several sounds wrapped up together. The sound of the tires on the pavement, the sound of the whooshing of the air, several sounds of the motor going by. And so right when you're into it, you can hear a lot more detail than if it's just, I don't like that sound, it's a car. That was my kind of common view of it. But learning to be mindful of it, there was much more increased intimacy with that flow of experience of a car driving by. We can practice that in the body. I was talking about, I spent a whole month once um, on this retreat, just enjoying the physicality of having a body and all that it can feel. And at first it wasn't very strong, but over the time of doing it, I could just feel more. I could feel the pulse. I feel my pulse of my heart and feel it in my neck and my wrists. And I started to feel it in my fingertips and I started feeling it all over my body. And I just, every time there was a heartbeat, I could feel the, the blood um, pumping through my body with a sense of awe of being in this body and it has a beating heart. It does this big motion of breathing, the ribs stretch and your skin stretches, your shoulders go up, your belly goes out and you let the breath out, cool air comes in, warm air go, goes out and you can be very intimate with that. 
And deepening that intimacy deepens, uh, it's sort of waking up to the body you actually have versus being a little bit scattered in your relationship to the body, a little bit numb to the body. The body is sort of a vehicle that you don't think much about because your attention is elsewhere. But as you drop in and actually feel what it's like to have one of these incredible human bodies, um, there's a joy that comes out of that. And that joy is, not, is unconditional because you'll find it in every condition. You can find a type of awe of being in a human body and feeling it all the time. And that comes back to uh, that wilderness guide again. He had learned to feel what it was like to be out in the Canadian wilderness. And at first, when we all showed up, we didn't have access to things that usually made us comfortable or made us happy. But over time, we also learned to feel what it was like to be out there. And that meant that our, we were not caught in conditions. My happiness only happens when it's sunny. Or I only like being up here when there are no bugs. Well, there are very few times that you can be up there with very few bugs. So then by that old formula, you would suffer a lot. By the new formula, yeah, to be up here and to see how beautiful it is, it comes with bugs. And it doesn't bother me like it did when I first arrived. That's the direction that we're headed patiently by becoming more intimate with our direct experience, with these simple experiences of what it's like to have uh, your chest expand with a breath and relax. And see if you can do that with one breath, and see if you can do that with several breaths before your mind wanders. And you'll see your capacity grows over the days. It's not linear, so there are ups and downs. But over time, you can deepen your relationship to having a body and having all these beautiful sense doors and be able to take in life that way. Then again, when you do that practice here, it's already worthwhile. It's already worthwhile to really take in the beauty when you walk out of here and see this beautiful landscape. And you can really take it in because your attention is gathered and you can see things and not get uh, too quickly into a bored mind or a wandering mind. You can stare at flowers or, again, the lizards around here. And you'll notice you have more capacity to take that in than you would in daily life. You'd see it, but you'd walk on. Over the days we were here, you'll be able to drop in more to your direct experience. Then when you take this practice out with you and you go back home, the world has not changed very much uh, in its patterns, but you'll see it so incredibly deeply. And that has been uh, just as profound as what happens on these retreats is what happens back in my ordinary life when I have this heightened sense of intimacy so I can really see what's happening as opposed to being a little bit dull, a little bit distracted, a little bit back, a little bit bored maybe. So that's what we're cultivating here. We take these three trainings <clears throat> of the ethical attunement, gathering our attention into concentration, and then using this intimacy to become more wise, more understanding of what's actually happening. And over time they begin to actually come together and it's the same thing, that as I'm present and seeing things clearly, I often have a kind uh, sense of what's going on, and so kind actions come out of that. If I see things clearly, I often don't want to be violent. I don't want to be stingy. I don't want to consider my own needs above other people's or theirs needs above mine. I can see that the ethical conduct piece 
is the same taste when my heart and my mind are beautifully present and intimate with my environment. And the ethical conduct piece grows out of that very beautifully. So we have these three trainings. And as we train in them, they begin to not only support each other, but it begins to almost taste like the same thing. And I would say at some point it does taste like the same thing. To be aware, to understand what's happening, uh, produces um, your ethical understanding. If you're causing harm and you realize it, of course you want to bring that to an end. And if you're filling into the environment and a generous thought comes up, that'd be really fun to act on that. You know, it's a possibility. So the presence, the wisdom, and the, and the sense of your ethical conduct um, will come together as well over time. But at first, you, it's good to know them in distinction to make sure that they're all actually up and running. That we have these five precepts and we're practicing them over these days. We have the concentration, returning our attention back to our feet, our breath, our sounds, food when we're eating. And these wisdom reflections about what is the nature of all this thought what is the nature of all this changing experience? So they feel they might start feeling distinct in the beginning, but as we wake up from all the agitation, as that snow globe that we were talking about, when that all settles and you can see clearly through it, the same heart and the same mind at the same time are ethically aware, ethically attuned, gathered, and uh, wise in what you're seeing and how you're understanding the world. So that's about enough information tonight. Thank you all for your attention. Um, let's sit for a little bit and let the words settle and see if we can gently but uh, intentionally bring our attention and ground it in the body, in the breath, with the flow of sounds. So we welcome forward a mind that, a mind and a heart that can be easily contented with the way things are. Letting that, the mind, the heart, and the body settle some and find a natural calm. We begin to gather our attention what we're calling the anchors of sound, breath, or body, welcoming our attention to be more whole, without force. And then welcome in this sense of intimacy with whatever you're experiencing what the body actually experiences as you breathe. Or with intimacy, what are these sounds made up of as actual sounds, not my interpretations of them? 
But what is the very simple sound underneath it all? What is that like? As I ring the bell, I, I welcome you to explore this out walking in the night and see if you can bring this intimacy to what it's like as you just take simple steps across the ground, being present, learning to savor those experiences. Enjoy your practice, and when we meet again this evening, we'll do a, a sit with some chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.